Good morning. I'm your show host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the January 5th, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. Happy New Year, all. I have a fresh new show for this new year to bring you. Jonathan Cohen, literacy tutor and freelance editor, will talk about his work with adult literacy program Read OC. As well, we'll hear from USC international relations professor and citizens climate lobby activist John O'Dell upon his return from the Paris Climate Talks. He took numbers, and some of them are not good enough. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back. My first guest is Jonathan Cohen. He's adult literacy tutor to talk today about his work with Read OC, a host of programs of the Orange County Public Library. Jonathan earned his BA at Yale College. He received a Mellon Fellowship in the Humanities and a Chancellor's Fellowship at UCI, where he completed a Master's in Comparative Literature. After work in private industry with engineering, internet, and security firms, he completed certification for paralegal work. He moved on into freelance editing, one product of which was The Complete Idiot's Guide to Literacy, Theory, and Criticism. While at Irvine Valley College, he transitioned from being a writing tutor for composition classes to tutoring English as Second Language, or we fondly call ESL, students. Last year, he discovered the adult literacy tutoring program at Reed OC. This fall, his efforts to coalesce the work of volunteers and staff garnered him the Orange County Board of Supervisors Excellence in Volunteerism Award. Reed OC is the focus of our time on the program. He joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jonathan Cohen. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so somebody's been horsing around with the mics. I'll, I'll have a talking with them. So now that we've had all the sound checks we ever wanted in one uh, half of a show, we're going to st- go right into Reed Orange County has some really extensive extensive offerings. Just to quickly name some of the programs, there's CORE, the ESL program, WIN, it's lesser known, working for inmate literacy now, probably is critical in reducing recidivism, I find out. Uh, Then there's the Families for Literacy and Reed Junior for school-age children of adult learners. Tell us, uh, you are working with which program, Jonathan Cohen? I'm working with with the CORE program. Um, So basically, English-speaking adults with very basic reading and writing needs. Okay, and we're going to distinguish this. We had a representative of the Newport Beach Adult Literacy Program. So let's write off, let's distinguish what the Orange County Array of Services does to distinguish itself from what listeners have heard from Newport Beach. Uh, Newport Beach has basically the same core literacy program as we do. Um, I believe it's uh, done by the same people. The the, the textbook is the same. Um, The difference is that we do have a couple of sub-programs, and one of them is Families for Literacy. Um, The problem is that um, if the parents in a family are not 
literate, if they don't have basic literacy, it's very easy for that to get transmitted down to their children. Um, and so therefore, um, the Family for Literacy program um, helps them read with their children and help them understand what they read in order to um, make them part of their kids' reading experience. They're seeing it, they're hearing it, they're feeling it. That's right. All of it. And they get, and they're together with their kids. It's not like their kids are racing out in front and they're struggling to to stay behind. This way, they're they're both at the same speed, at the same pace. So there's a not just a cognitive, but there's a there's a cultural, so a social kind of reinforcing part of of literacy in the adult generation of a family, ESL family. Um, ESL and basic literacy are two different things. I'm they're, sorry. They're, go ahead. They're, they're two different approaches. Um, ESL works primarily with people from other countries who may have um, high or low verbal skills in their native language, but who have few skills in their target language, which is okay. English. Okay. All right. Um, adult literacy works with both people from foreign countries and people from here who have low literacy in English. Okay. Well, in uh, we'll talk about the demographics, but I just want to first go over the general programs. Can you tell us about the working for inmate literacy now? Is is it are, are there numbers out there that are telling us that this is an exact uh, way to deal with recidivism by giving a a, a literacy tool uh, set of t- skills skill set to re- help the the incarcerated person transition to have a, a more uh, productive life after their uh, detention? Um, I don't have direct numbers on that, but um, I will say that, you know, when people are released from jail, it's as though they're coming back to a foreign country. Um, it's, um, they, ha- they, may, they may have few of the skills necessary to survive in the outside world, and that's one of the reasons why there's recidivism. And by getting their English up to speed, we're we're basically cutting down one of the barriers that they have to right. a job and to integration into society. Right, right. Oh, it's intuitive. I'm not putting uh, putting you in a position of the actual numbers, but I think either intuitively we can understand that, and maybe the buzz of all of the volunteer tutors are talking about. Hey, we're making re- really great inroads, and anecdotally, you're probably getting some pretty good ideas about how successful that is. Anecdotally, yes. Uh, and anecdotes are powerful. I, <laughs> I'm driven by those as well. <laughs> it makes for good storytelling. Uh, yeah, uh, yes, indeed. So, and the, the families for literacy, how's that working out? Um, the answer is that I am not in that program, right. but I am doing things that are essentially um, sort of simil- setting it up. S- setting it up, exactly. So, f- so, for example, I had a learner who had a seventh grade student in, uh, and a second grade student. Um, and the question was, how could she best read to her, um, her family? Because she had divergent grade levels, and she needed to be able to understand what she read. And so I spent a lot of time trying to discern her actual grade level. Wow, you did. Um, There's it a t- skill. took a lot of trial and error, let me tell you. There's a placement test that you take when you apply to Read OC. Okay. Um, and it's very good. Um, wow. But it works um, by giving people words and letter combinations of, of increasing difficulty. And when they start making errors, then you know, boom, there's their level. Okay. Um, but in my case, I had to do a lot more practical work to ascertain that because um, because 
seemingly um, everything at fourth grade and up was too hard, and everything at third grade and down was too difficult. So, excuse me, too easy. Too easy. Right, I'm right. sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. We understand. Yeah. Um, so I spent time trying to find the kind of texts that she could read, and eventually I found a type of book called a high-low book, uh, which is um, a book which is of high interest to adults, but low reading level. And um, I found some old 19th century French stories which had been edited down to third grade reading level. And those worked. She really caught on to the emotions of the story. And she, she even cried a little bit at the end. Wow. Very sad story. Um, and um, with that, she could tell her second grader and her seventh grader about what she had read. So the high-low books can... Are those easily... Uh found just for, so people could who's, who are listening could find out more about that that kind of we'll call it a genre for lack of a better term um the answer is that the orange county public library has holdings okay which which which, which people can take a look at and they're very nicely cataloged too so it shouldn't be that hard okay and ask your librarian <laughs> but but for people to find them because that's like sounds like that's the that's the key that opens the lock to literacy is getting that uh, capturing the language competency and the content so that that person is never going to put a book down again or any materials. That's right. Um, I mean, one common mistake is to um, give them children's books. But the fact is that their concerns and interests and uh, tastes are probably very different from those of their children. So it's important to give them something that, that is at their cognitive level, even while their linguistic level is not as high. Actually, I think I know this kind of a book. I, it was a, there were some souvenirs I brought back from Johannesburg, South Africa. They were for adult learners, and they were they were there was a kind of a gritty. It wasn't adult level. It was kind of gritty, sort of African themes, but uh, and but it was up up their level. But it was very simple kind of. Well, it's for English learning. That's how I could follow what was going on in there. It wasn't in Koza Zulu or something like that. So, well, I want to know how does the county sustain these programs. Well, the answer is that the county does it through the Orange County Public Library. Um, and there are a couple of internal funds within the library which uh, specifically go to, to supporting Read OC. There's also very important the Friends of Read OC, which is the group of people in the community, people like you and me, who decide that Read OC is a great thing and support it, either through its fundraisers or through um, helping to spread the message to get more people involved in teaching and learning about literacy. Okay. So the program's strong. The, Pro su the board of supervisors aren't looking over any zeroing out this budget item. This thing is it's making its case every year to year in each budget. I sincerely hope so. It's above my pay grade to know exactly what's going oh, on. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> okay. So let's then talk about who's eligible. I mean, you talked a little bit about type, but who's the target population and the demographics, the beneficiaries, the age, the you mentioned a little bit skill level, the characteristics of, of these, the individuals and the families. Well, the answer is, um, when I asked this question of uh, my boss, she said, everyone, that, 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 there is, that there are one in four people in Orange County, which is about 400,000 people who are either low literacy or illiterate completely. And um, th they all need help and they all have different positions in the community. Some are working at jobs where they can't read signs like warning, danger. Um, others mm. are um, at home and they live in a bubble where they only speak to people of their own language. Um, and 
um, there, there are still others who are the family members of those who are affected. So it's really, if you're 16 and up, pretty much, and you have a little literacy, you are a good fit for Read OC. Are, can you break it down for us, Jonathan Cohen, about which, what percentage, what fraction of the this clientele are learning English as a second language? Not not in the ESL program, but I mean, with the low literacy, does it come from learning a, a an other than English language, or what, what percentage? And what are our natural or what do we call it, the language uh, English learners, English speaking? Native. I don't know what's the term. I, I can't give you a number on that, actually. Okay. But, but it's um, pretty mixed. It is pretty mixed. And okay. so far, my assignments have been with people who speak English as a second language. Mostly is. Okay. But I'm sure you you haven't. But, but, it can but, happen when you've but, got... But, but other people have, um, you know, um, have, very, have, have, have American native-born students who simply did not get what they needed out of high school. Right. Um, and Were they sort of... Do you think unidentified special education clients, and that's they just never got the the real proper kind of oversight? It's possible. Um, I think that um, really they were just people for whom you, you know for whom school just went over their heads, and um, they just didn't pay attention to it, and they dropped out, or they or they weren't they weren't interested. It wasn't weren't, reaching them exactly. And so there are a lot of people who later in life are realizing, hey. I've got to get on the stick and um, increase my language skills. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web and library lobbies all over the world at KUCI.org. My guest is Jonathan Cohen, local wordsmith, speaking in his capacity as a tutor at Read OC, a literacy host of literacy programs here uh, in Orange County. So... How, um, I guess you, we can see how you got started in this tutoring work. It must be really gratifying to, to help these folks out. It is. It really is. Um, I'm a volunteer, so obviously I don't get any money for this. But um, I would do this for the rest of my life if I could. And if by some miracle I could get paid for it, that would be amazing. But I would do it without basically, um, you know, in my faith tradition, there's a phrase called repairing the world. And this is something which I can do with my skills mm. that um, I can do one person at a time. You're a mitzvah. A mitzvah. A mitzvah. Yeah, the phrase in Hebrew is tikkun olam, uh, repairing the world. Okay. Well, so I don't know if you have any stories. Just think, think in the back of your mind if you have any stories to tell us about. So you mentioned and are preparing for this program, there is a particular tool that can really unleash the, we're talking about reading and we're talking about writing. And in terms of the writing pedagogy, there's a lovely tool that you, I don't know if you divined it or sort of you sliding scale, you've, you've enriched the tool. Tell us about that graphic guide to getting a writer unlocked. Well, one of the difficulties with beginning writers is that they don't want to write or feel as though they're not comfortable writing. And so there are various topics which are which are native to them, I mean, such as their home, their families, their immediate desires. But the question is how to get them writing about something else. And uh, the New York Times published online 10 very ambiguous photographs, um, very visually beautiful, 
but with very mysterious contents. Um, for example, um, one of them showed people in bright clothing lying down behind a train on the tracks. And so the question is, what's going on here? And so I asked, and I got a little guess, and I said, can you go further? And I just go further and further, and eventually we get something written. We get a paragraph written. We. Oui. So your hands are tied, your lips are locked, except for that little nudge, but that's that process happening in that fashion. That's right. And that, and that shows the learner that she can generate words on demand. She just has to have something to observe. So, just because I can't resist, Jonathan Cohen. So, that person, it must be a magic, the sweet spot, the magic moment for you when you see them engage and they see the fruits of their effort. They, they catch on and they delight and they move into a deeper level of literacy. Yeah, that's a real pleasure. <laughs> I bet. I, it's very... I mean, I could think of some terms that might be equivalent of, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's um, it's a great thing to walk away and know that, you know, you've made something happen. And those days are not, you know, there aren't, there aren't many of them because there's a lot of hard progress that has to go on in between. Lots of grit. But there are days when there's insight, and it's wonderful. Uh, another example is... To, of trying to generate writing is, is through poetry. Um, there was a there was a poet named Kenneth Koch who lived in the who was in the New York school in the sixties, um, who devised these ways for elementary school students to write poetry, and the way he did it um, was through these formulas. Um, back then I was dot dot dot, but now I am dot dot dot. Okay. So every one of those is the lines of a poem. So. I mean, in the simple way it happens. Before I, before, I was in Iran, and now I'm in America. Before, I had much family, but now I have very few family. And so she just uses the framework of those, those two tags to write an extended piece. Oh, I can think of so many things how, where you could come from that in a time and a place an an act a very like a very pedestrian activity before I did this one thing, then and then after I did this, I wonder if anybody's used the literacy program before I started read OC after I you know I started working on that that that's another one, and poetry though is it is it the is the the open ended structure that is befuddling to these literacy students or is it welcoming or it just all depends on the person all depends on the person um i, I every time that i've done it it's it's worked you know it, it really has succeeded in there. it has worked every time yeah wow uh it, it's and um it, it succeeded in their making a lot of in, in their writing a lot more than they expected to well i would like to find out how you would get Someone who's now leaning really close to their speaker, they want to know how they can get involved. Let us know where they go and how to get started. Oh, before we do that, just you know, we're ready to get that up there. Uh, there was one thing I noticed in the literature that you sent me is that any tutor or any learner, they need to directly contact Read OC. This this is this is where it all starts. So, and then how they do that, and then how they go from there okay well tutors and learners can I can do one of two things they can call read OC at 714-566-3070 
Which goes in the podcast summary, folks. Or visit our website at www.readoc.org. And from here, the paths for learners and tutors um, diverge. Okay. The, the tutors um, will go into a training program, which is about 20 hours, and which is on, sa- it's, it's on Saturdays. And um, the next one begins on January 20th of oh, this year. Just in time then. Okay. Yes. All right. That's, I believe, that falls on a Wednesday this year, I'm thinking. Okay? Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, the, the the learners, what will happen is that they will be evaluated over the phone to see whether this is the right program for them. And if it is the right program, then they will be asked to go to one of the libraries, the library closest to them. Oh, yes. And let's go, yeah, talk about the where. Yeah, we um, haven't gotten to that. Yes. Well, they, they can go to any of the libraries of the Orange County Public Library. Any branch will but, do. But um, somebody will come to evaluate them. Okay. And we'll give them that series of increasing difficulty tests to find out where they are both in reading and speaking. Um, and then there's a waiting list. Um, Is that huge? It, it's, a, it's a couple months. Okay. Um, and um, they have to, um, they, they, then they'll be matched up with a tutor who matches them in personality and who matches them in terms of the times that they're available at the places that they're available. Okay. Okay. And then? And then, well, if you're a tutor, you, you take the training, and you, um, it's very, very hands-on, very, there, there are plenty of exercises and um, group activities and so on and so forth. And then you graduate from that, and you get a little, little certificate from the county, and you're ready to start on your first student. So I, we just have a, a moment to wrap. There are so many directions folks can go with this. So I'm glad that we've got to start on the January 20th. Yes, the January 20th next round. People can sign up in either of these capacities and get the gratification and get the... Um, there, there's no January 20th deadline for learners. No. Learners can call just whenever the they want. Just okay. for tutors. Okay, fine. So then to wrap up this, Jonathan, does this work, has it changed any way you approach your own wordsmithing? Yes, it does. It basically, it tells me that simplicity and clarity are really completely key, that I may be thinking at my level, but that there are many other people reading of differing reading levels. Uh And that although one doesn't have to put it down to the least common denominator, one should try to make it readable by all levels as much as possible. Well said. That's a capper, Jonathan Cohen. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for bringing this illustrious enterprise to all of our attention. It's a, it's kind of a New Year resolution for me to present this today. And I want to thank you, Jonathan Cohen, Reed OC Tutor and word, local wordsmith. Thank you, Jonathan, for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll be right back after a short station break with John O'Dell, who's fresh from the UN Paris Climate Talks. Be with you in just a moment.
Welcome back to the show. Returning to Ask a Leader is my next guest, John O'Dell, USC Professor Emeritus of International Relations and Senior Fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation, headquartered in Canada, as well as a, a full-on affiliate of the Citizens Climate Lobby. Currently, he's heading a project for the Center to develop new ideas to improve climate governance at the global level. And at home, as I said, he's with the Citizens Climate Lobby, working for U.S. legislation to collect a fee on coal, oil, and gas and send the money to all carbon families. That's the carbon tax. We've talked about that before. We won't get to talk much about that today, but it's always there to return to in other programming. John O'Dell completed his B.A., at the University of Texas, Austin, and his MA and PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. John uh, attended the UN talks on climate change in Paris last month, and since we've talked uh, with other members of CCNL, the Citizen Climate Lobby, more inroads have been made, and we're hoping that the the climate talks in Paris put wind in their wings. We Goodness knows we need it in our uh, political uh, dynamic going on. He comes to us again today from Pasadena to measure whether Paris steps inches, m well, millimeters forward. So welcome back to the States and to Ask a Leader, John O'Dell. Good morning, Claudia. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm so glad that you make yourself available yet again. We're on a really, really a vigorous streak here with you and several, like once a month, it's almost right at this point. Well, let's start with your general disposition about the process uh, and the conclusion of the UN Paris talks. I guess this this might be the classic test of, you know, what's necessary and what's sufficient. This was a necessary step, but maybe not sufficient. Many have described the outcome as a good one were the needle set at 1995, but this is, after all, 20 years later and billions and billions of tons of emissions later. What's your disposition, John O'Dell? Well, I would say I can report three main headlines from Paris, as I see it. Number one is that 195 countries did finally reach a climate agreement. It is a historic milestone. 150 heads of government stood shoulder to shoulder on the first day of this conference to say, we agree, we need to do something to confront this gigantic challenge. Second, the agreement by itself is inadequate. Far more needs to be done. And number three, on the other hand, and much less noted by the media, and I'd love to talk about this a little bit. Please, that's why you're here. Uh, COP21 also showcased more than the U.N. official talks. There was a huge groundswell of work already getting done by cities, investors, businesses, state governments, national governments acting on their own before there was a Paris Agreement. This doesn't make for a resting video, but I think it's vitally important. Oh, okay. And we'll talk about some of those sideshows, um, including a, a theater piece that, that Bill McKibben did that I heard on Pacifica Radio broadcast, uh, actually the beginning of this week. So the groundswell, that's, so it's happening with cities, it's happening with financial leaders. Let's talk about, well, let's talk about this. The, back to the numbers. You, as you were uh, talking with me in preparation for this, you mentioned that this was a first in Paris where how many leaders of how many countries were in one place at one meeting. Unprecedented. Yeah, 150 heads of government and, and state. There's never been that many on the same place the same day in history. 
which was a powerful symbol of political yes. will that something needs to be done. That that was phenomenal. So back to now to the the side the the groundswell. One was the the China's cap and trade is out in front of other countries. I'm not not sure about Europe, but let's talk about the aspect of the feasibility. Also, there are five cities and two provinces where this is being institutionalized or will be by 2017. Can you talk to us about what the Chinese are setting up? Yes. Uh, A number of countries, many countries, have actually done more than they are required to do by the U.N., and uh, China is one of them. And more than most Americans realize, uh, they had a, uh, they've consulted with their own climate scientists over the years who have told them that they're going to take it in the neck from climate change. So they have already been building more solar than we have. They've built more wind capacity than we have. Their vehicle fleet gets higher miles per gallon than ours. They have made pledges on climate in the past and have met those pledges. Their coal consumption, coal is their number one biggest source of energy because it's cheap and they have huge amounts of it, and it creates all their air pollution, but their coal consumption fell in 2014 and again in 2015. They made a pledge uh, in the U.N. climate talks, and a part of the, one of the meetings I attended, a side event, was about their cap-and-trade system. Uh, they are putting in place a cap-and-trade system with some cooperation from California, by the way, to put a price on carbon to create incentives to move away from carbon. They did this first by launching pilot projects in Beijing, Tianjin, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Hebei province, and Guangzhou province. And then uh, this September, when President Xi was at the White House, he announced that they were going to launch a nationwide cap-and-trade system in 2017. This is a complex thing to do. Uh, It means training every enterprise at every local level how to account for its emissions and report them, set up registries for emissions, decide how many permits to issue, how to set a cap, and so forth. So it's not yet doing anything, really, to reduce uh, emissions. But Uh, President Obama, standing next to him, could not reply that our country is going to implement an economy-wide price on carbon pollution because the U.S. Congress, frankly, is behind China in that respect. Behind China, but as we discussed briefly and formally, there is the institutional aspect, the backstory that China government and uh, bureaucracy brings to this, where the, the corruption potential, although there's leadership in advancing this kind of a program, there there is a, a corporate governmental culture that makes this a fraught kind of step-taking in China. Yes, yes, Chinese government is, is, is fraught with corruption. Uh, we all know about that. But if the top leadership decide they want to do something right. in China... <laughs> They, they get have it ways done. of getting it done. They get it For done. instance, their first target on this was to reduce the ratio between carbon emissions and GDP growth. To do that, they had to shut down some of their oldest and most polluting coal-fired electricity plants. But doing that meant laying off people. It was painful locally. But they simply gave orders to the local Communist Party cadres in each of those areas and said, your job description will be 
and you will be evaluated on whether you do this or not. And they did it. So it's very complicated, and there are arguments that a, uh, a, a tax-type measure rather than a cap-and-trade measure might be more effective, especially in developing countries. But this is what China is doing, and it looks from the experts like they will implement it. And when they do, because China is such an enormous trading power, it's likely that other countries that trade with China will face an incentive to set up a comparable system. Right. The one... The one who's working this in the most technologically advanced has the greater market share in production of name product. Eventually, that's where we talked about that. So the matter of pledges, there's the haves and the have-nots that we're all participating in what shape pledges take. Whether that's the, eventually it was decided that the or shall turned into should, but let's talk a bit about the dynamic. For those of us who weren't able to be right there, uh, how the uh, developing countries were holding on to their precious resources, that's their capital, to try to leverage what they could of developed countries who have a much higher standard of living. How how the pledges took shape and wh- how much meaning, how much uh, power there is behind that step taking? Excellent questions. Uh, The nature of the pledges and the process that got to this this point. I guess just as quick background, I would say a major reason why the UN didn't produce another one of their stalemates this time is that they changed the structure of the deal they were aiming to reach. The Kyoto Protocol, you know, was the top down, and this is bottom up. So they agreed, 195 governments agreed, that every country shall make some unilateral contribution or pledge of its own for the period of 2020 to 2030. They also agreed that each shall make a new pledge every five years that is better than current practice. They agreed they'll all report their emissions and what they're doing according to some common template. And they agreed that every five years collectively they're going to review the science and their own performance, and the advocates hope this review will lead governments to ratchet up climate actions in future to where they need to be. In the past, they were trying to reach agreement on a top-down deal that would enforce cuts on everybody, and there was a huge amount of on the process of of argument from the developing countries who said, look, you you people caused this problem, and we're facing the consequences, and we're not going to do a thing. And by the way, you're going to pay us to uh, compensate us for the damage that we're suffering from your pollution. And the U.S. and other countries simply didn't agree, and so they got nowhere. So this way, where the, the agreement is just a set of unilateral pledges, everybody does whatever he feels comfortable in his own national interest, there was less to fight over. It was already uh. <clears throat> differentiated. Each country was going to do whatever it could. But still, they had to agree on the text uh, of a Paris Agreement, and they spent the whole year negotiating over this text. And at the end of the first week in Paris, they were still divided over many, many issues in the text. And it looked to me like it was possible they would reach another uh, another stalemate. Uh. But the French, supported by the uh, Ban Ki-moon, did a brilliant job of managing this process in Geneva over the text. Tell uh, us about that to the extent you know. 
Well, it, it, the, the way they normally operated up until this, the last week is they, they, they put the text up on a big jumbotron in the meeting room, and every proposal made by any delegation goes up there. And then, of course, to compromise means somebody has to lose something off that jumbotron, which makes it harder to do. This is just set up to make it difficult to reach agreement. So at the end of the first week, uh, Foreign Minister Fabius changed the process. He brought in other ministers. Previous to that, it was the ambassadorial level. Now the ministers are a level higher. Right. Several of them uh, They're in government. mediated. Uh, he divided the outstanding issues into four groups and appointed a rich country and a poor country minister to mediate each of those issues. And they shifted to an informal process where they now the question was, what can you suggest that would overcome the differences we've got left? And when that didn't work, they met bilaterally, the mediators with governments. This went on all throughout the second week, through the night, uh, Thursday night, through the night, Friday night, and gradually governments fell back from their positions. I thought it going into it, that the biggest issue was going to be financing. Uh, it always has been. The developing, developing countries say, we're not going to agree unless you cough up more money. But it looked like this was a bluff, since if they didn't get the money and they blocked the agreement, it would be actually worse, even worse for them. And that is what happened. They ended up backing off, and they accepted text, which really doesn't guarantee them any more money than than before. Uh, but they did get this major milestone, and each one of them, the French uh, managed it such a way that there is text that each delegation could take back and say, this is what we got. For example, the African group, uh, a red line for them, they said, was a, an article in the agreement about adaptation to climate change that's already happening. That's never been in a U.N. agreement. It's always been about cutting emissions. Now, there is an article on adaptation, and the African delegations claim that's, that's a success for them. And there were other examples like that. Okay. For those of you who've just tuned in, my guest is John O'Dell, USC Emeritus Professor of International Relations and Senior Fellow at the Center for International Governance, Innovation in Canada, and a Citizens climate lobby affiliate. He's offering his personal observations of last month's UN climate talks. He attended them in Paris last month. This is Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web in meeting places, negotiation zones, all over the world on KUCI.org. So let's talk about those standout gestures The, the with the groundswell, the groundswell's coming from Let's talk about what the Bank of England's head of finance task force had to bring to the mix of what is the possible. Okay. Uh, that's very important to me and vital, in fact, uh, because when you think about it, uh, stopping climate change means stopping the carbon emissions, which means nothing less than decarbonizing the entire world economy. That's going to take trillions of dollars of investment over the century. And most of the money is in private hands. Governments will never have enough money to make all that investment. So it's vital to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement for governments to set up the policy environment for the private capital markets to incentivize them to 
move uh, in this direction of the sustainable development. Uh, and one of those uh, sets of steps is with investors, and that's what uh, the Bank of England is worried about. Uh, they're worried that uh, investors own stocks in uh, oil companies and so forth that could drop in value when it becomes clear that a lot of the oil has to stay in the ground. Uh, and so that's not happening yet. They're not dropping in value. But he has set up a task force to create voluntary guidelines for investors to use to track the exposure in their investment portfolios to possible risks from climate change. But the Bank of England's task force is not the only thing that's that's going on. For example, um, two of the biggest institutional investors in the world are CalSTRS, the California State Teacher Retirement System, and CalPERS, California Public Employee Retirement Systems. The head officers of each of those institutions was in Paris. They were talking about how largest uh, institutional investors in the world are measuring the carbon footprints of their companies and advocating to their companies and reallocating some of their capital to low-carbon strategies. I mean, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund has announced that they are divesting from fossil fuel stocks. The Rockefellers. Right. The carbon people. <laughs> so All kinds when of carbon investors are asking the companies, corporate boards now are paying attention. And they're talking about this all over the world. Uh, they're expanding sustainability offices to provide the data. At least a 1,000 world companies are using an internal carbon price themselves in their own investment planning, even where it's not required yet by government. Uh, and in the U.S., last year, over 80 famous companies made pledges to reduce their own emissions or increase green investments. So they see a business case for moving. And I think this is encouraging. I think the political significance of this groundswell, also the things being done by cities and states, is that if the, if the if the groundswell gets out in front of the politicians, the national politicians, then when they have to make their new pledges in 2020 and 25 and so forth, they may be more um, ambitious because they can see that it's already happening and it's not killing their economies. So when you mentioned that leadership aspect, I was thinking of this a little bit later, but I want to not miss a chance to ask you this now is, did this kind of momentum this kind of profile in Paris internationally give you an invigorated position to engage the attention and cooperation of our national legislators. We got to get that in now because I, I can't I can't miss that opportunity to ask you. Yes, definitely. Uh, the story now is that all the countries of the world have agreed that we need strong action to fight climate change, and that wasn't the case before. There was, uh, for a long time, uh, argument that, well, there's no point in our cutting our emissions because if we do, China will just fill it up uh, and it will make no difference. Well, now China is, is making a pledge along with us. In fact, this is the first agreement in the U.N. that China and the U.S. have both uh, joined. Right which is a uh, big improvement. Um, uh, true, it's true that this agreement is weak 
in the sense that, uh, first, these are just unilateral pledges, and second, there's no legal mechanism to punish noncompliance in the Paris Agreement. This review process is supposed to uh, act as peer pressure. Uh, and so the critics will say, well, it's, it's not really even a, uh, a legally binding agreement. Uh, but that's what's important, why the groundswell is important to me. Uh, and it also leads us back to the point that the pledges uh, made in 2015 are not adequate to save us from the worst of climate change. And so we have lots more work to do in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, and we're going to keep right on doing it. So you mentioned you added up every, if every should was a shall in what the unilateral pledges were. Every one of those was executed, that the goal uh, of two degrees centigrade cap uh, increase in the world te- global temperature, that in fact, were these pledges all implemented, it would bring it under two degrees centigrade? No, it would not. It would uh, not. This That's was a problem. the second big headline. Uh, the, this historic agreement is not enough by itself. These pledges added together, uh, if they were all carried out, would probably stop global warming somewhere around three degrees Celsius above okay. pre-industrial levels by 2100 versus four to five degrees Celsius under current policy. That's the improvement. <clears throat> okay. It's, but so, <clears throat> it is still better cook. than four to five degrees, but plus C, plus three is far, far too dangerous to ensure that we'll have a livable planet for our grandchildren. It would risk inundating coastal cities, mass migrations, damage to health and businesses, and all the rest. So the initial pledges are not enough, and that's why there's a need for this review process and why we'll have to work in the United States to to cut our emissions much more than is possible without new legislation. But things are going on all over the world, uh, and new investments in technology, uh, uh, countries getting together to promote new R&D for better technologies that would help uh, further decouple growth from carbon uh, pollution. Uh, And we can do it uh, in the United States. Uh, We know uh, legislation that would uh, do what Europe has done. You know, we're certainly not the world leaders in this. The Europeans have cut their emissions since 1990 by about 20% while expanding their economy by 45%. But our emissions are higher today than in 1990, not lower. Right, yeah. And, and we could cut our emissions far more than John Kerry was able to pledge in Paris while actually increasing, like the Europeans, the number of jobs and the GDP in our country. Even with present technologies, um, the barrier is really only political. And speaking of those limits, uh, you talked in preparation, too, about the the limits of the pledge that they are only involved by sectors, a certain kind of pr- uh, production. But you are saying the the goal really needs to be, and the thinking, the discussion needs to be economy-wide pledges. Could you tell us more about that? Yes. In countries that can't adopt an economy-wide cap on emissions, they can do smaller steps, such as uh, in our country, in different states, passing laws that say 
electricity generation has to have a minimum of, say, 20% coming from renewables by 2030, uh, a renewable energy standard. Governments can also pass requirements to increase the efficiency of buildings, uh, saving energy there, or regulations in transportation to increase efficiency there. These are all sectoral measures. But a, an economy-wide measure would be like a cap-and-trade system or a carbon fee and dividend, which would put a price on carbon throughout the economy. That way, everybody who makes a decision, a business, a household, <clears throat> would face the full cost of the carbon choice, which we're not facing now, because we're pumping some of the cost out of our tailpipes. And then we would all make decisions uh, that would move us away from carbon pollution. Uh, this would be a more comprehensive approach. Politicians are in China and in the United States have been worried that doing that might cost too much to their economies. So they've been experimenting, and we've oh. got a, an experiment going in California, which is showing that we can cut our emissions while, while continuing economic growth. But these sectoral steps are, and the state-by-state -state approaches are all piecemeal. They are not big enough to address a problem as gigantic as global climate change. Well, and also the economy-wide helps the society address externalities much more effectively and more judiciously. Yes, that's right. And it also is probably more efficient economically. Right. Exactly. Well, any any of these, we've talked about the leverage with the congressional appointments. Uh, who's next on Citizens Climate uh, Lobby uh, calendar bring up this fresh development uh, coming up? Well, we're working all the time, Citizens Climate Lobby, writing letters to editors, op-eds, meeting with congressional offices Do you have throughout any... the year in the district. And then in, in, in June, we'll meet in Washington for a, a lobby day where we'll go to every, every House uh, and every Senate office, if we can, uh, to talk about the good news. The, the proposal we have, which is politically designed to appeal to conservatives as well as progressives, and which will reduce our emissions much faster than we can under present law, and which will actually add jobs to the U.S. economy and improve our health. So we think we have uh, a good news story to tell, and we're going to just keep telling it. Um, if it doesn't work this year, we'll keep telling it next year. Okay. I, I was just hoping you were going to give us a little scoop on who you're going to meet with coming up. Well, I wanted to ask you, as I, I was fleetingly uh, referring earlier on, there was a, a, a mock trial that Bill McKibben of 350 Degrees had staged. He was gathering testimony of people all over the world who are endangered either by sea level rise or extreme weather changes. Did you witness any special forms like that while you were in the Paris area? No, I didn't see uh, that one or uh, any of the other actions. There was an action day on Saturday the 5th, the day I was flying across the Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, and when I was there, I spent my time inside the secure area trying to uh, get as close as I could to the talks. Uh, there was uh, an area right next door to it, which was open to citizens from all over the world, uh, where some of these things were taking place. And I did get over there one day, but I'm afraid I didn't witness okay. that. Well, about what you did do. I mean, what was it like? It must have been a thrill, thrill a second in that group. 
Yes, it was a great privilege to be there, and it was fascinating. I uh, took the metro every day from central Paris, uh, and despite the recent terror in Paris, uh, it seemed to me that the people were going about their business in the thousands, uh, much as normal. The security didn't seem to be that much greater than in Lima last year, for instance. And the venue was at Le Bourget, which was Paris's first airfield. That's where Charles Lindbergh landed the Spirit of St. Louis okay. back in 1927. And they had remodeled old hangars into vast halls with meeting rooms and places where governments and NGOs could hand out their publications. There were little stations where you could recharge your gizmos by pedaling a bicycle. And uh, the cafeteria-style food at COP21 was actually pretty good. This, this was France, after all. France, well, sustainable and French, I suppose. It had to be both, right? Yeah, okay. Right. Well, I, I just want to give you a chance. You, if, you, if you don't, I can plug the next forum. Citizens Climate Lobby is going to have, it's on January 19th. Maybe you're attending. Maybe, well, that's a bit far for you, but you might be coming down. It's a Tuesday, so a week from today. 7 o'clock in Mission Viejo Canyon. Democrats are at the Norman Murray Center on uh, 249 32 Veterans Way. They're going to have special guest speaker of CCL, uh, Craig Preston. I believe I had Craig on. Uh, so that's something folks can do if they want to uh, to join us and be a part of a really big project. So I want to thank you so much, John O'Dell, for being on Ask a Leader today and posting us. And I keep wanting you back every time another meeting happens and you can be our our man in the in the suit, uh, not the trench coat, but the suit and uh, covering what is so, so important in, un, in our unwieldy need to turn this engine of disaster around. Well, thank you for inviting me. I do think it's a historic milestone, but it, uh, it, it motivates us to get back into the, the trenches and, and do more work to try to, to get a better solution to uh, preserve a livable planet for our, our kids. Okay. John O'Dell, USC Emeritus Professor of International Relations, thank you again for being on the show. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, uh, this is my wrap. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. 